I don't know if we saw it. There is a picture of um, Kendra and the girls. This was the first day of school. So there's Audrey, Amelia, and Kennedy there. Going from a party of one to party of five. Um, life was boring <laughs> as party of one. Now life is a, life is a party. So um, it's been a lot of fun, though. And, and so, um, well, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Adam Kuntz, one of the student pastors here on staff. And it's always a joy and an honor, any chance I get to share my heart with you all. Um, a few years ago, I went trout fishing with a mentor of mine in southern Missouri, and I grew up fishing, so I went somewhat regularly as a kid. So I'm pretty familiar with things that when it includes like fishing things. And at this time, uh, it had been a number of years since I had gone, and so there was probably a 10-year gap from my last fishing experience, and I thought it would go smoothly, but it didn't. Uh, I quickly realized I lost the level of expertise that I thought I had. I kept tossing my line out into the water, and I caught everything but a fish. You ever had those moments where you just you keep snagging your line? You, in order for you to get your line back, you have to break the line, and so then you have to spend moments tying the string onto the hook just so you could fish again, just so you could snag something else. It was, it's, it's more like I only laughed so I wouldn't cry at how many times I snagged my line. It was really impressive for how many times I did. I even snagged my line on the throwback. It would, didn't even like get into the water, and I snagged it on a weed or a rock or something. And my mentor had this vest, and it had all these gadgets on it for fishing specifically. And he had every tool you could ever need or think you could possibly need. And he even had these glasses that were like Hubble Telescope Edition where you could like see your fishing line without straining your eyes. He had everything he could possibly need. And so I kept snagging my line and he had everything just in these little pockets. And I don't think he fished a lot that day because he was rescuing me, saving my line. He would have to tie so many fishermen's knots in that day. We just kept running into the same problem over and over and over again and me snagging my line. It actually doesn't make me want to go fishing ever again, but it's, you know, I know it's fun. I know it can be fun. <laughs> so, um, but in our passage today, we're going to be reading about a problem that keeps happening over and over and over again. And it's one that you probably think, well, where are they going to go with it this time? Because we've already read about an instance like this. We're going to be looking at an account where the Pharisees have an issue with the Sabbath or a Sabbath controversy. And we even saw this, I think, in chapter uh, 13. T.A. taught on that. It was the Sabbath controversy as well. But before we look into what the controversy is all about, I do want to give us the big idea, like the main point for today in which I want us to look through this passage. And it's really long, so be ready to write. And the big idea today is this. Mercy never rests. Mercy never rests. So Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. Luke 14 verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it in its entirety, then we're going to Put some work in. So let's read Luke 14, 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. 
And to them he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer for these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, may we look at this passage today and may you just meet us directly where we're at. God, there's so many different people and stories represented here just in this service, and I ask, Lord, that in your mercy, that you would meet us. God, may the truths that we uncover here in your word, may they be pressed deeply into our hearts, God, and take root. May we walk away changed as a result, Lord. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This is the last of six instances just in the Gospel of Luke, where there's a controversial happening over the Sabbath. The Pharisees are constantly trying to set up Jesus and trap Jesus with either his words or his actions. The Pharisees will manipulate any given situation to put Jesus in a tough spot. And this repeated scenario of Luke's is a reminder that nothing has changed in the hearts of these Pharisees. This time, though, it's a little different. In, in this passage, the Pharisees are left silent. They don't have anything to say in response to Jesus being moved with mercy and compassion towards a man who needs healing. The mercy of Jesus in this instance has left the Pharisees speechless. It's not even Jesus' words that stun the Pharisees. It's his mercy. Verses 1 through 2 say, One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. Now, we, we don't know specifically whose house this scene is taking place at. Might have been a synagogue official, a higher officer, or chief priest, but whoever's house they are at, it's obviously a prominent person. And they, they had their eye on who in this passage? Who did the Pharisees have their eye on? Jesus. I think that's interesting. They had their eye on Jesus, not the man in front of them with, that was, had swollen with fluids or dropsy. And that man was there before Jesus got there. So what did that in-between time look like where it was just the Pharisees and the man with dropsy in the room? It probably looks similar to that situation where you pull up at the red light and someone's asking for money and you try to act like they're not there. And you're waiting at the longest red light on planet Earth, right here in Liberty. The Pharisees not only had blinded eyes, but hardened hearts to the need that was right in front of them. So the Pharisees had their eyes on Jesus, watching him closely. And a more accurate trans translation would say that Jesus, they were watching Jesus lurkingly. Like, that's not even a fun word to say. Like, lurking, they were lurking at Jesus. Just this, I've got my eye on you kind of attitude. They had their eye on Jesus, but Jesus also had his eye on them, but in totally different fashion. Isn't it amazing that two people or two different groups of people can be in the same room and have a totally different experience than the other person or group? It could be so different that it would make you wonder if the two were even experiencing the same thing. Hard hearts do that. Hard hearts 
blind eyes. Weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the soils in Luke 8. Some seed fell on the hard soil. And we know from the story that the problem with the seed that fell on the hard soil is never with the seed or God's word. The problem is always with the soil, the condition of our hearts. And the Pharisees have in their very room a man in need. And they've become callous and I would even say indifferent to the point of being spiritually blind to the obvious needs that are right in front of them. Dropsy is the name of the condition that this man has. The symptoms are swollen limbs and tissue resulting from excess body fluids. This is more just from having just a lot of sodium from your ramen noodle diet. Technically, dropsy isn't even a disease. It's rather a symptom of a larger problem, mainly a heart condition. But we're going to see that the man in need of healing wasn't the one with the fatal heart condition. It was the Pharisees. Oh, that God would give us eyes to see the needs around us. May God chip away at the hard soil of our hearts that cause indifference and stagnation. May we be receptive and ready to pursue the obvious needs and the not-so-obvious needs around us. Now, before we move on to the rest of the story, it brought up a question in my mind through my study. Like, was this man planted at the house or did he just meander into the house? Because culturally, it wasn't unheard of for there to be an open floor plan and you hear that someone is going to have a conversation with Jesus over dinner. It wasn't uncommon for someone to just walk in and just say, I want to listen to what's happening here. I mean, we couldn't imagine that happening today. But it wasn't unheard of for that to be the case. But maybe the Pharisees did try to finagle a way for Jesus to, so, to, to walk upon this man in their house. The text does say that the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely, so it does kind of help us lean towards that there was a setup. But regardless, we don't know. The man is sitting before Jesus, though, and he's waiting a response. And Jesus, on the Sabbath, responds. Look at it with me in verse 3. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. I find it fascinating that the emphasis on this story isn't on the man being healed at all. More emphasis is placed on Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Not the fact that the excess fluid was just miraculously disappeared. Jesus' first response is to the Pharisees. He's basically like saying, is it cool or not that I do this? And just waits for a response, but silence. Not a word. Now, why would the Pharisees be silent? If this was a setup, Jesus walked right into the situation. Happened like clockwork. It's the Sabbath. Jesus sees a man in need. The Pharisees are going to try to trip him up. He heals the man on the Sabbath. They have him right where they want him. But yet there's silence. This is what they were lurking after. But Jesus, asking the question, is this right or not, silences them. Why? 
Because they've added to God's law. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that extending mercy on the Sabbath is a no-no. They have hardened their hearts to the point of being blinded by the rituals and traditions and have placed man-made laws on top of God's law, passing it off as God's law. How delusional that we could fall prey to adding or editing God's standard for humanity. Hard hearts do that. Hard hearts breed pride. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says, Not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom be ours. A humble and teachable heart. Standing in awe of a holy God who's superior in every way is the beginning stages of walking in wisdom. Luke, in his account, is helping us see the condition of the Pharisees' hearts. Their pride has puffed up their minds and starved their hearts. And Jesus' question to them has also put the Pharisees in a tough spot. If they say that it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, it raises a problem about their tradition and their view on the law. If they say that it's not permitted to heal on the Sabbath, then they will be seen as against doing good and showing mercy and compassion on the Sabbath. They've put themselves in quite a tough spot. But they just remain silent. There is no repentance. There is no yeah, you're right. Or, goodness, we were way off base. Thank you for saying something that makes total sense. There is none of that. The pride is so thick that they can't even utter the words, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. They can't even do that. Just silence. You can almost feel the tension in the room. So with the question hanging in the air, unanswered, Jesus takes the man, heals him, and sends him away. I mean, the vibe in the room is way different in this healing account than the others. Usually in the Gospels, when Jesus heals a person in need, there's a rejoicing, not only for the person healed, but for those around them, whether they know the person or not. They're usually sent away praising God. Like there's this picture of people running off into the sunset and then there's a heel click and then they keep running. It's like that's the image we get in Scripture. That's not what happens here. There's no celebration for this man. Think of it, that Jesus heals this man in need and he sends him away. And the Pharisees just met with resistance and stubbornness. And pride. Oh, that God would give us a heart that's humble and teachable. A heart that's not puffed up with arrogance, but rather an accurate view of ourselves. And a heart that boasts only in Christ and the work that He's done that we couldn't do for ourselves. May we rejoice when we see mercy on display. Moving on to the last two verses in this passage, read with me in verse 5. And to them He said... 
Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. Now, just to be clear, the Pharisees have not said a single thing in this account, and they still haven't. After healing the man, Jesus turns and says, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? I mean, what a comparison. You have a son or the family ox. If you could relate to one, surely you can relate to the other, right? But get this, even the Pharisees couldn't respond to a basic question to get to the heart of the Pharisees. That last question was pertaining to the man that they may or may not have known, but surely when dealing with your son or livestock, you could understand. Jesus' question in the Pharisees' silence is again exposing their hearts. The welfare of an animal is of more importance than the well-being of a man that lay right in front of them in need. Surely they would show mercy to their own family, even if it was the Sabbath. But they couldn't find or even verbalize the answer to a basic call of mercy upon another. Hard hearts do that. Hard hearts belittle life. The Pharisees claimed to be defending God's Sabbath laws, but in reality, when they were denying God by the way, they denied mercy to a man that was in need. There was no value in the hearts of the Pharisees for this man. He was a prop in their scheme. He was a chess piece to them. And we can look at this account and just be sickened with what's taken place. We can sit back in our chairs and think, man, they're so far gone. How sad of them not to see how off base they are. But sadly, many followers of Jesus, myself included, fall prey to our hearts being deceived, indifferent, and hard-hearted. We can easily kick our spiritual walk into cruise control, which isn't cruise control at all, it's really neutral. And we start to drift, and we drift, and we drift. And we start relying on things like image management, which leads itself to pretending or performing rather than being honest with where our hearts are in the moment. We can become so blind and so prideful and so neglectful to the needs around us. And when we get too caught up in these man-made rules and rituals, we just lend ourselves to legalistic tendencies, adding on to God's law, passing it off as God's law. We can get so off kilter when we promote man's traditions over protecting God's truth. David Garland in his commentary says, People can be quite legalistic in strictly applying rules to others, but when they are hit with similar problems, they are quick to bend them. It becomes a crisis for which loopholes can be found. I mean, isn't that true of us? We love the fact that God is full of grace and truth, but we also love that God is gracious towards us and justice. People need to get what they deserve, yet we want the grace all to ourselves. May this not be the case in our hearts. May we not just sit in the silence of our own blinded eyes, prideful hearts, and neglectful spirits. 
oh God, that we would make us a people that would pursue continual mercy. May our hearts be softened towards people and what God is doing in our midst. See, the the time is always right to show mercy. Mercy never rests. And you and I, we are never exempt or dismissed from showing mercy. Whether it's the Sabbath, your birthday, the second Thursday of the month when it's raining, the time is always right to show mercy. The mercy of God has played out in my life in a number of times and in a number of ways. But in a more recent season, I've been a recipient of God's mercy. In the summer of 2019, I actually found myself in the seats of this church. I wasn't on staff yet. I was on staff at another church in Blue Springs, serving as student pastor. But I was given six weeks off. I had been there for seven years at the time, so the time away was good and necessary. But I found myself here at LCF because I was a pastor going through a divorce. I was married for six years at the time, and we were even going through the process of adoption. But time had revealed that the marital covenant had been broken. So I was given six weeks to rest, heal, and be fed. And that's what I did. I showed up here at LCF six weeks straight. Just needed to be fed with the gospel. And as a church, you were going through the book of Proverbs if you were here during that time. And in our times of worship together as a church, I couldn't even muster up the strength to sing. I tried, but I couldn't. I couldn't physically sing. All my life, you've been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. My heart believed it, but my lips couldn't express it. But you sang over me, church. Even when I couldn't verbalize the goodness of God, you made sure that the song was heard in my heart. I mean, how gracious and merciful is our God. His mercy never rests. A year later, an opportunity came for me to step into the role here as student pastor, which was great because I found myself here coming to Liberty more and more to hang out with friends, new and old, one of which being Kendra. And to see God orchestrate our relationship to grow and develop in both of our lives has been such a redemption story in its own. And I can say with confidence that I would never wish this awful season on anyone, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Life has been really difficult since then, gut-wrenching at times. But even in those no good, very bad seasons, God has been so good and kind towards me. His mercy never rests. Kendra has a quote hanging up in her house that I love. It's from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, and it's Susan talking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan. If you're not familiar with the story, Aslan is seen as God in this story. And it says, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? 
course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. His mercy never rests. It never runs out. It's never exhausted. So thank you, church, for your faithfulness in helping me see that even in the scary, dark, seemingly hopeless seasons of life, you help me see the overwhelming goodness of our God. You help me see that mercy never rests. And so to stand up here today, days away from a new season in marriage, giving a message, I'm filled with gratefulness, having tasted and seen the mercy of Jesus through his church. And you may be thinking, well, yeah, of course you think he's good. Things are shaping up for you. And that may be what it appears. But the goodness of God never hangs in the balance based off our life's current circumstances. His goodness has never been in jeopardy because suffering entered your doorstep. He is good. He's so good. Even when life is not. It's easy to sing praises to God on the mountaintops, but it's in the valleys where our faith is actually exposed. And even when life isn't panning out the way you and I thought it would, He's still good. And I'll show you why He's good in our passage. Think back to the story. Where was all of this happen- happening? It was in Jerusalem. The passage we just looked at last week, Jesus wept over Jerusalem knowing what was to come from that city. Jesus showed mercy just in going to Jerusalem. Not only was he in Jerusalem, but he was also in the house of a Pharisee, the very people that continually try and trap Jesus. Jesus showed mercy just in stepping foot in the house of a Pharisee. He could have easily said, you know, thanks for the invite, but I'm actually going to pass. No one would blink twice at Jesus for doing that. He was full of mercy in even attending this dinner party. Jesus showed mercy in seeing the man with dropsy and meeting his need. It was merciful of Jesus to heal the man. And Jesus in his mercy cared more for people and God's truth rather than promoting man's traditions and add-ons. Zooming out just a little bit more. Jesus showed mercy to all of humanity by stepping into our sin-stained world, living a perfectly obedient life to the point of death on a cross to redeem all of humanity. It was there that Jesus experienced the most horrific death in all of history while also upholding and offering to us the greatest triumph the world has ever known. The greatest triumph is ours for the taking for those that have placed their faith in Jesus. And the never-ending mercy of Jesus was on display for all of humanity by stepping into our world. When we were dead in our sins, He came and gave us life. How merciful is our God? His mercy never rests. There's a dedication page in Pilgrim's Progress that's comforted my heart recently. And I want to read it here. It's, it's short but profound. Long is the journey, good is the king. Long is the journey, good is the king. Amen? Let's respond in worship. Go ahead and stand.